really enjoy that. So, and we would have played apples to apples if that's what you're doing. <laughs> We'll be in Acts 3 in a moment, so you want to keep a finger there. I think the words will be up on the screen too. But uh, A USA Today survey from some years ago asked the question, what do you think are your chances of getting into heaven? Great question, USA Today. I love it. A woman from Hammond, Indiana answered, my chances are kind of slim, maybe 50-50. I have to be more of a nice person, but I'm still in the running. And you might know, this is just a very common worldview. It's the majority report, a little bit humorous in the way she says it, but her beliefs are not unusual. She has a very exaggerated view of her own sovereignty, a very small view of her own sin, and very likely a small view of heaven. Heaven is a place where earthly pleasures are just magnified and unending and multiplied, rather than, rather than the place where the Savior, who died for sinners is enjoyed and worshipped for all of eternity. She's not nice enough, something of an admission of guilt, I suppose, but, but this isn't such a problem that she can't overcome it. She just needs to be nicer, and apparently she thinks this is something she is able to do, and, and if she does it, it will make up for all of her failures. She's in control. So, so my question is, how would this gal and others like her, how, how would she respond to the gospel of grace? The good news that we're not saved by good deeds. Not saved by racking up points for being nice, but saved as a gift alone through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for sin so that sinners can be forgiven and go to heaven purely on the merit of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Logically, you would just think any person would love that. Just thinking intellectually, you would think they would love that. But this lady from Hammond, Indiana, who thinks she has maybe a 50% chance of going to heaven, would just eat up the news that she could be assured of heaven and be able to go to heaven as a gift and not have to work so hard at being nice or risk the terrifying possibility that in the end she wasn't nice enough. I would propose that on her own, apart from the Spirit of God at work in her, she would not love the gospel. God might use the proclamation of the gospel to create faith in her, but but apart from that, she would remain a rebel to it. She would actually hate the gospel. The gospel is great news, but it is hard news. It loses its appeal when it is brought to a heart with a sinful bent. To to believe this news, to receive the gift, is to admit absolute need of the gift. Absolute dependence on the giver is to surrender control, or at least to to recognize the absence of control. We like to maintain this illusion of control. I can be nice. I just need to be nicer. When am I going to get around to being nicer? I don't know, but I can do it. It's up to me. gospel offers salvation, forgiveness, eternity, and the glorious presence of God, worshiping Him as a gift. You cannot get it any other way. It is a gift only. If you're trying to earn it, you don't have it. If you ask someone if they're a Christian and they say, well, I'm trying to be, honestly, they're they're probably not. 
Being a Christian is not something you, you can try to be or you can achieve by your own effort. It's not something you earn. It. It's something you are because you've been born again. You've been born of the Spirit. Not born of human will, born of the Spirit of God, John 1.13. A true Christian is someone who is resting in what Christ has done on the cross for them, not in what they have done or what they might do or what they might try to do. So I bring up this gal from Hammond, Indiana, because her situation and her sentiments and her disposition are shared by the character we just heard about from Acts 3. Two cripples, lame from birth, each powerless to find healing, neither even really looking for it, each with a small view of God's sovereignty and, and the small view of the glory of heaven, each with a sinful bent that, that keeps them from seeing the glory of the gospel and their need for it. So, so we hear that passage. We read Acts 3, 1 through 10, or, or any time I read the Bible, really I have questions that rise up in me as I consider the scriptures. Do you have this experience? So as I was reading Acts 3, 1 through 10, I had two main questions that came up for me. The first one was, why aren't miracles like this common today? And doesn't your mind go there? You have an ailment or, or a loved one does, a sickness. You just long for them to be healed. And you just wonder, why isn't this part of ordinary Christianity? My second question is, is what is faith? And where does it come in for this healed cripple? Faith in the Bible is critical. We, re- we read about it all through the Bible. Just a couple of passages Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. Um, to the synagogue ruler whose daughter had died, Jesus said in, in Luke 8.50, Do not fear, only believe, and, and she will be well. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. I believe in this passage in Acts, we're seeing a man get saved. And this becomes even more evident in the ensuing passages and even chapters, but he, he must have faith. If, he has, if he's now saved, he, he must have faith. So, so what is faith, first of all, and then how did it come in for this crippled beggar healed in this story? We'll answer that question too. <laughs> Here's this man, lame from birth, right? Utterly dependent on others for his well-being. He's not been taught any skill or trained for any meaningful task that we know of. He, he has people in his life who will take him places, he'll drop him off, they'll transport him, put him in a strategic place to beg. But at this point, he's not a believer. From uh, the previous passage in Acts 2, 44 through 46, we have this description of the believing community. It says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the needs to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. It says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. This man is not with them and he has need. He's not a part of the gathering of believers in the temple courts. He's dropped at the gate. He's on the outside and as a cripple, he's unclean. He cannot go into the temple court to join the worshipers there. But I'm convinced he would have heard the gospel. He would have heard the story of Jesus. He would have known about the events that had taken place months earlier. 
He had to have known the facts of the gospel. In Luke 24, at the end of Luke's gospel, as, um, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, as two men are walking on the road to Emmaus, talking about Jesus and everything that had happened during Holy Week, and Jesus shows up in their midst. He's talking with them. They don't recognize that it's Jesus. They're just, and Jesus asks them what they're discussing, and, and they take Jesus to have no knowledge of the events of Holy Week. Luke 24, 18. Then one of them, Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? It was incomprehensible to think that someone who's even a visitor to Jerusalem of late wouldn't know about what had happened. So now we're weeks or months out, and, and this guy is daily at the temple gate. Believers are passing by him multiple times a day on the way into the temple to pray. So I expect he knows the story. He, he might even believe the story to be factual. And yet, at this point, he remains unmoved by it. It is not glorious to him. It's not the greatest thing he's ever heard. That for him, there's something greater. There's something better, something more important, something more pressing. And he's focused on that right now. He, he's after alms. He wants gifts or coins or something from people who would give him anything that they would give him. And we can relate to that. You've you got to eat, right? got to eat, but, but is it possible that there's something even greater than eating? There was a teenage gal who was depressed and discouraged, couldn't seem to get out of her funk, so, so she went to talk with her pastor, and her pastor asked her if she loved Jesus. Yeah, she did. And did she believe that Jesus died on the cross for all of her sins? Yes, she believed that. And was she living in surrender to whatever Jesus wanted her to do and to be? Yes, she was trusting Jesus as her Savior and as her Lord. Well, then the pastor explained, not, all, not only have all of your sins been forgiven, past, present, and future, all of them paid for, never to be used against her for all of eternity, but she now has the righteousness of Christ. She was perfect. She was as perfect in the sight of God as Jesus Christ. She was as loved and as accepted as Jesus Christ. She was a child of God, enjoying all the rights and privileges of a daughter of the king now and forever. And the girl listened, and, and she took it all in, and then she replied, yeah, but what good does that do me if I don't have a boyfriend? She had all the right answers. Intellectually, she agreed with all the right things. She knew the truth but she was unmoved by the truth. Much like our beggar in Acts 3. The gospel's fine, sure, but there's something greater, there's something more pressing to live for. And churches, honestly, are, are filled with people like this. They don't really love God or want to know God. They just want what God can do for them. And consequently, they don't really understand what the church is all about. This, this beggar has a low and wrong expectation of the church. The church, these are people who can give me alms. These are the people most likely to be moved to meet my physical needs. He's on the fringe of the community. But he's not committed to the community. He, he's only there to receive from the community. And he has a fantastic excuse He's been crippled all his life. Not many of us can top that. And it's just 
an excuse. Romans 1.20 says we are without excuse. We are rebels. We are idolaters. We are blasphemers. We refuse to repent and believe of our own doing. We suppress the truth of the gospel and refuse to see the glory of it ourselves. We just want God's stuff. And all of that is on us. We have no excuse. This crippled beggar, he was not a cripple of his own doing. He's not responsible for that. It just happened to him. But he is responsible for how he has responded to what happened to him. He is responsible for the rebellious, sinful, self-centered way he has lived his life. And we're no different. Life has happened to us. Some of it tragic and awful and not our fault. And, And we're not responsible for the things that happen to us. We are responsible for how we respond. We don't have an excuse to respond to life in bitterness or rebellion or self-absorption. Well, this happened. Now everyone owes me. God owes me. I'm just a victim. We are without excuse. But we read about the crippled beggar and our hearts go out to him, rightfully so. At the same time, we need to balance our compassion with the fact that he's also a rebel. His rejection of the gospel is an enormous offense to his creator, which is true of every person on the planet, regardless of the hand we've been dealt. Peter and John were were going up in verse 1. We're going up. The the tense of the Greek indicates that they they customarily went up to the temple to pray. There was a tradition of praying at stated times in the temple, which they kept. Verse 2, And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. He was carried. He was utterly dependent on others. He's asking for alms. He wants gifts of of money or goods that are given to the poor. Verse 3, Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. He sees them. He asks for alms. I don't know if he's not holding out his hand as he looks down or or away, but but Peter in verse 4 now commands him to look at them. And I expect this man just feels so much shame, sees himself as just the lowest of the low, lives in humiliation, but but what can he do? He knows people don't want to look him in the eye. So he saves them the trouble by looking away. Maybe you've experienced this. You see someone panhandling, and it's hard to even meet their gaze sometimes. Right? What is that about? It's almost like we don't want to acknowledge their existence or their humanity. There's four, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Which is, this is no small thing. It shows the man that he has seen. It's a reminder to him that he is not forgotten, that he is not Nobody, that that Peter and John see him is a reminder that God sees him. Verse 5, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Naturally, he thinks they're going to give him something. What else would this be about? Little does he know. Verse 6, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And you wonder, what was going through this guy's mind? Um, I was really just asking for alms. 
And then maybe his mind starts to turn like, what if? All his, all his life he had watched people stand and walk and jump and run. He depended on people who could stand and walk. He could not. Really, could this, could this really be? And there's that name again, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He's the one they said performed all those miraculous signs and wonders. And then he was crucified, of all things. He was dead and buried. And now people are saying he was raised to life. People talking about how they saw him. Witnesses everywhere saw him. Hundreds, now thousands, gathering to worship him. Could this all be true? And the story reminds me of of Jesus healing the paralytic in Mark 2, and it's in the other Gospels too, but the the guy brought to Jesus by by the four friends who lowered him through the roof. And Jesus looks at the man and tells him his sins are forgiven. Right? I I just picture there was a lot of sideways glances amongst the friends as Jesus says this. They're like, okay, um, but there's a medical condition here. See, our friend, he can't walk. Forgiveness, sure, but, but our friend has, has other needs, and, and I expect they too had a small and mistaken view of true need. They thought their greatest needs were physical, earthly, temporary. They didn't see spiritual need. And did Jesus really have that kind of power? Anyone can say your sins are forgiven. How are we supposed to really know if they are? So then Jesus told the man to to rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And and the man does it. And notice that he healed the man so that his ability to forgive sins would be made known and believed. So that people could see that Jesus has the power to make all things new, spiritually and physically. That's what miracles are. Miracles are not suspensions of the natural order. Rather, they're the the restoration of the way God wants the world to be. When when a cripple is is made to walk or a blind person made to see or a dead person raised to life, the natural order is being restored, not violated, restored. When when sins are forgiven, rebels are, are brought back and made sons and daughters as they were at the beginning, and as they will be for eternity. Miracles show that God is an enemy of suffering. And He's dealing with suffering. And it will be finally and forever dealt with. Miracles are signs that point to greater realities. They point to the gospel. So we read of the miracles in the gospels and here in Acts and and kind of wish that this was just normal Christianity, and wonder if we were doing right, if we wouldn't just see this more often in our midst, there's a temptation then to think that the miraculous is an end in itself. Why aren't miracles like this common today? I think the reason is because miracles aren't the point. Miracles point to something greater. So many people miss this, especially like prosperity gospel, faith healers, Word of faith movement, all of these heretical misrepresentations of the gospel which make earthly blessing the ultimate good. They make what is temporary ultimate. Well, even in Christ-centered, gospel-centered 
Bible-preaching churches, we have to fight against this. God sometimes does heal miraculously. I believe he still can. I believe sometimes he does, but, but doesn't always. Doesn't normally. We see healing in the Gospels. We, we see it in Acts. Even there, it's, it's a bit unusual. Jesus didn't heal everybody. The apostles didn't heal everybody. Into the epistles, I don't think we see healing much at all as the churches were being established. I can't think of any miraculous healings recorded in the epistles because miracles point, but they are not the point. The paralytic in Mark 2 was healed, but, but then at some point he got sick and was not healed. The same with the crippled beggar of Acts 3. He's no longer with us. They were healed not as an end in itself, but to point to something greater. When you go to Mount Rushmore, you don't get your picture taken with a sign that says Mount Rushmore, do you? I think some people do. It's a bit weird. <laughs> it's just a sign. It's just a sign. It points to a greater reality. It's, it's no comparison to the reality itself. Have you seen Mount Rushmore? It's amazing. The sign points to the greater reality, but it is not itself the greater reality. With the paralytic, Jesus wanted people to know he had the authority to forgive sins, something God alone could do. And here in Acts 3, the healing is a sign as well. God uses it as an occasion to point not just this man, but many to Jesus Christ, as you can see in in the ensuing verses and chapters in Acts as it all plays out. The paralytic in Mark 2 came for healing, and he got so much more. He not only walked away, he walked away with the forgiveness of sin, with eternal joy, with the hope of eternal life. Our cripple here in Acts 3, he, he wasn't even asking to walk. He just wanted some coins. And I like the way the King James says, verse 6, Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have Give I thee, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Silver and gold have I none, and I'm not sorry about it. Forget about the coins. You're asking for a band-aid. I have a cure. I have something greater. And we'll see, not just greater, infinitely and eternally greater. Verse 7, And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Peter lays hold of him, raises him up, and the muscles he's never used are suddenly able to hold his weight. Though he's never stood, he's able to balance, he's never walked. Suddenly, he can not only walk, but jump. Verse 8, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Isaiah 35, Isaiah written... 700 years before Jesus, speaks of when God will come to save. And he says in Isaiah 35, 6, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. What, what God had promised way back in Isaiah is now coming to pass. Christ has come, and now his apostles are carrying out the ministry in his name, evidenced by this lame man who can now leap like a deer. Though he was not a true worshiper, now his tongue has been loosed to praise God. And notice one more thing in verse 8. He was an outsider. 
He didn't belong with the believing community, not just because he was a cripple who couldn't enter the temple court, but also because he wasn't a believer. And now he enters the temple with them, not dragged along, not begrudgingly, but walking and leaping. And praising God, absolutely thrilled to be among the believers, worshiping the one true God he has come to know. He started this day on the outside, hoping for a little scratch with which to get by, now filled with the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, didn't have saving faith, now a true believer. He was unclean physically as a cripple, not permitted in the temple, a true picture of his spiritual condition, unclean, unfit for the presence of God. And his physical healing now depicts his his spiritual condition. He's spiritually clean. He's forgiven, now fit for the presence of God by the righteousness of Christ, credited to him now and for eternity. When did that happen exactly? When in this story did the man come to faith? We know it happened. Luke doesn't use the word for faith in these verses. It comes up in verse 16 of chapter 3. But this man came to faith. I think that's evident by what has happened here and what, what you can see in the, in the verses that ensue. I'd like a little more detail, frankly. <laughs> Much like Saul's conversion later in Acts, there's no explicit report of repenting and believing. We just know this man was not a believer, and then he was. So when did he come to faith? Well, there are some truths about faith we observe here and elsewhere in the scriptures that I think will be helpful for us to consider. Faith is not something you just conjure up. It's not something you just do on your own. Word of faith and prosperity gospel folks would would have you believe if you can just conjure up enough faith, you'll be healed. Well, here's a guy not even asking to be healed. And faith has has nothing to do with magic words. There's no special words that express or invoke faith. The sinner's prayer, if you know what that is, may have been involved in in your conversion. But but saying the right words didn't save you. If you became a true believer, it was because of your heart's disposition of repentance and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, your prayer and expression of that trust. We don't have a record of this man praying any kind of prayer here, which doesn't mean he didn't pray. But it's safe to say his prayer wasn't decisive or even a necessary element of his conversion. And then faith has an object. Faith has an object. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Peter says, rise up and walk. Faith is trust in Jesus in who God is, in what He promises to be and do, faith for faith's sake or faith in faith, or you just got to believe these kind of platitudes are are pointless. It's the object of faith that makes all the difference. Peter points to Jesus Christ. That's where faith belongs. That is where glory belongs. Our words and our lives ought to do the same, to, to glorify God, to point others to His excellencies. So the point of this story is not about the man. It's about God. And so it's not just for him. Look again at verses 9 and 10. 
And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. All the people. The glory of Jesus is being made known. They were filled with wonder and amazement. Not not so that they can say, when do I get my physical healing? But so they can be ready to hear the gospel. As the story goes on, that becomes clear. People receive the gospel as they're, and they're called to repentance and faith. And just to complete the thought on faith, biblically, saving faith includes repentance. It's a change of mind, a turning from trusting in self to trusting in God. So this crippled beggar has come to this kind of saving faith. Where did it come from? Well, faith is a gift, Ephesians 2.8, referenced that one earlier. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Believing in Jesus is granted along with suffering for his sake. Repentance is granted in 2 Timothy 2.25. At some point, this guy received the gift. The light was turned on. He believed in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Could it be otherwise? Could it be something other than a gift? I would argue that if it's not a gift, God is robbed of glory. That man gets at least some of the glory. Think think about how this plays out otherwise. Guy comes home from the beautiful gate. His mom notices something different about you, son can't put my finger on it. Oh, you walk. Now you walk. And he says, well, Mom, I don't know what happened, but let me tell you what I think. I was doing some careful study, interviewed witnesses, examined the scriptures, figured out that Jesus was the Christ, and so I placed my trust in him. Or, or, or Mom, I'm just trying to be the best version of myself. Found, found this guy, Jesus. He's really moral. Really good dude. Decided to follow him. Get a load of me now. How about that? Or, Mom, I just decided I needed to humble myself. And then Jesus came into my life. Can you believe how humble I am? (laughs) Right? If faith is not a gift, then God gets some of the glory, most of the glory, maybe 99% of the glory. But but does God get all the glory if it's something that, that man can cook up on his own, apart from God. If, if faith is not a gift, doesn't there have to be something in me? Don't I have to be better or smarter or more moral or, or more humble on my own to account for why I believe and someone else doesn't? Two people hear the gospel. One person believes, the other person doesn't. Well, why does this person believe if faith is not a gift? He doesn't he have to be smarter, better, more moral, something to account for it? Isn't there some glory for that person? Isaiah 42 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. First Corinthians 4 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? If you receive a gift, you have nothing to boast about. This crippled beggar received faith. He has no reason to brag. The real story when he got home, 
Mama, I don't know what happened. I don't know. All I wanted was a little something with which to get by. I would have called it a good day if I got a few coins. And now I can walk and run and jump. And better still, my eyes are open to see Jesus Christ for the all-satisfying treasure that He is. And my life will never be the same. I don't know, Mom. It just happened to me. And if you are a Christian, His story is your story. And the elements might look a little bit different. You, you went looking for God, sure. That was God drawing you to Himself. You examined the Scriptures. or You decided to receive Christ. That was God at work in you. That was God at work bringing you to faith, giving you faith. Whatever the story was, that was the Spirit of God at work in you. 1 Corinthians 15 says, 10 says, Paul uh, says, but for the grace of God, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Sounds like boasting, right? If we stop right there, Paul, you're bragging. Oh, wait, it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. We are responsible to repent and believe and respond to God in faith. (laughs) And then whatever we do in moving toward God is actually a gift of God. Our exercising of faith is a gift of grace. And I don't want to take for granted that, that everyone here identifies with that. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you don't love the gospel. Your life isn't really committed to Jesus Christ. Do you identify with our gal from Hammond, Indiana? Said my chances are kind of slim, maybe 50-50. I have to be more of a nice person. But I'm still in the running She is not in the running. She is not. No one is good. Paul quoting Psalm 14 and Romans 3. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. As long as you are hoping in your own goodness, you are not in the running. Her hope and your hope is not in how nice you are or how nice you can be or how good you are. Your your only hope is the undeserved mercy of God. Your only hope is to repent and believe the gospel. Because of the gospel only are you still running. So if you've not done this, I challenge you to, to trust in what Jesus did on the cross and commit your life to Him. It's actually not optional. It's a commandment. Mark 1.15, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. To delay is to disobey. So my prayer this morning is, as you have heard and considered God's word, the good news of the gospel, that if He hasn't yet, gifted you faith, that he would be creating faith in you right now, that you would respond to the gospel. And if you have committed your life to Christ, I want you to consider this once more from Romans 3.11. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. And yet here you are, worshiping him, enjoying him, Knowing Him is your greatest treasure. How about that? (laughs) 
can we do other than walking and leaping and praising God? Let's pray. God, we praise you for what you've done in our lives, for bringing us to yourself, for giving us faith, for opening our eyes to see your greatness and your glory. That we can know you now and for eternity. I pray that you would be at work in us, especially as we consider the year ahead, that our lives would be full of faith, full of wonder and amazement at what you've done to bring us to yourself. We'd have an eye for the depth of grace that you've given us to make us your own. May we live out of delight for that. In Jesus' name, amen.